0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Kenyon Fields is one of the main founders of the Western Landowners Alliance. His background is in conservation biology and landscape-scale conservation planning. It is this background that led him to convene the first meetings of what later became the WLA as he and fellow conservation biologists realized the critical role that landowners can play in keeping the West whole. Western Landowners Alliance brings together science, policy, and human needs to produce a shared vision of private landowners working collectively to conserve the rich natural values of the West while sustaining their businesses and communities. Kenyon worked for many years in Alaska for the U.S. Forest Service, an Alaska native organization, and as executive director of Sitka Conservation Society. Kenyon helps his wife Mary manage Mountain Island Ranch in Utah and Colorado. And since we start today talking about Mountain Island Ranch set in a picture-perfect landscape, we start this podcast with much-needed visuals. Uh, If anybody wants to open another browser tab, not in your car... But if you're sitting down, open another browser tab and go to KenyonFieldsPhoto.com and and just go there and you'll get the picture right away. <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> Once you get there, you'll get the picture. But um, I just wanted to open up by saying, what is it like to live in a Georgia O'Keefe painting?
1: <laughs> That's actually the name of one of the rocks uh, I'm looking at. Right now there's this big butte across a hayfield from us and we call it O'Keeffe Rock. So, um, what is it like? It's, uh, it's been a remarkable experience in so many ways to be able to live on a ranch like this in this big wild country and, and to actually stay put longer than I ever have in one place, to watch the seasons and the, the comings and goings of critters. and
0: it Must be such an honor to be charged with taking care of of such a piece of land.
1: Yeah, it's a tremendous honor and treat. And you know, on the photo side of things, it's a fun challenge to try to capture all the different macro and micro characteristics of a place like this, with without allowing yourself yourself to indulge too much in the in this sort of classic postcard look of the Southwest, you know, that, that golden hour glow on all these amazing rock faces. And, you know, it's easy to take calendar photos in a landscape as generous as this. Um, But instead to try to, you know, I'll always put a few of those in there, but instead to try to find the, the angles that you don't necessarily see unless you spend a lot of time in a place is one of the, the challenges I love here.
0: I see a, an angle that I really love uh, of a, a, bear, I would assume mom <laughs> and cub dashing off into the brush and, uh, paws up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> paws up. I love that picture. And other things I, I do see that you are working hard. Although I think you would have to work really hard not to take calendar pictures. I mean, that's, you're literally in, you know, calendar land, <laughs> at least yeah, like me, these are the calendars I would look at and pick up, uh, as would, uh, all of our listeners. Um, but, yeah, you've got some really cool stuff here, and and uh, I just wanted to draw everybody there. You can, uh, you know, when I'm listening to podcasts and I'm not uh, multitasking or something, I like to look at material related to who I'm talking to or listening to, um, and this is Mountain Island Ranch. Um, do you want to describe your place a little bit more before we get into uh, the rest?
1: Sure. Um, Mountain Island, it's a a very large working ranch on the border of colorado and utah it's in both states and my wife's family um put it back together about a half a century ago so it it was the first place homesteaded by a white person in the late 1880s after the Utes were forcibly removed from the area Um, and he picked the high country and and the low country that that he found best in this area which became a ranch that was then over the years broken up and my wife's family was able to put it back together um, years ago by rebuying all these various parcels. And um, so it, it ranges from about 10,000 feet all the way down to uh, 4,000 feet along the Colorado River. So we've got a, you know, a mild gradient of, um, of ecological change um, going from, you know, much, much warmer, low desert all the way up to uh, to spruce and aspen forest. And all the private land is under conservation easement. We have a, a cow-calf cattle herd that's all organic and grass-fed with all the various certifications for animal welfare and so forth. We grow organic hay to f- get them through the hard part of the winter. We do uh, elk and deer outfitting in the high country and then mostly a lot of conservation projects a lot of habitat improvement and restoration type projects which is what you know that that's really what gets gets my wife and her son and and me out of bed in the morning are those projects.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I sort of tend to take for granted what people know about working conservation lands and one of the reasons I think is because uh I worked in New Mexico on Ted Turner's Ladder Ranch when he uh, offered up some of his land for wolf uh, reintroduction pins. Wolves had to go somewhere to get acclimated. And it's really what the program was called was the acclimation program before they actually got released in the... Mm-hmm. Um, Nahila and elsewhere, so we built pins and we built very special wolf pins because they had to have fence underneath under the ground and a big overhang, and they had to be very tall because wolves can get out of seemingly impossible to get yourself out of situations so I was like, "This is really cool. this is what this is like and that i 'm really glad to have had that experience because I kind of start to feel like what it might be a little tiny bit like uh, with you and the kind of work that not only you but Um, other people who belong to uh, Western Landowners Alliance. Can you draw us a picture of what it's like to be on a working land? It's not just conservation land that's locked up like a national park or something.
1: Nor is it just working lands for the sake of, of maximal profit. Um, It's the balance Mm -hmm. of the two that is the real challenge. That's, you know, the interesting part. Yeah, you're right. Not everybody has that, an impression of what it what it's like or, or just of the the nexus of conservation and ranching. I mean there's a lot of um I, I think we're growing out of this perspective, but certainly I was raised in the perspective of cattle are all bad. They ruin the land. Ranchers call themselves the original stewards, but actually they you know, they just trash public lands and the welfare ranching model and, you know, that that whole mode of thinking is it's still it's still out there and certainly there are you know not everybody treats the land well um but i think it's become far more commonplace to see real working ranches that are making a living by producing a you know commodities crops for whom long-term holistic management of the landscape and all of it all of what it entails is really the driving motivation. You know, often the only limitation on on just how conservation forward uh, the stewardship can be is the bottom line of the the working part of the equation. In other words, these ranches, by and large, are are very marginal if if sustainable at all from an economic perspective just getting the operations to pay for themselves and, and put a little bit on the table is hard enough. But then if you add conservation goals, which often carry a deep price tag, it's not so easy to do. But the good thing is that the, the trend is towards more people wanting to do this this balance of conservation and economic production. And the more of us that want to do it, the more tools, Eventually, get developed, and the more knowledge is shared, and that was really the origin of the Western Landowners Alliance. This: how do we, how do we create a, a networked organization of, of people trying to, to work this nexus and and sustain and keep keep these ranches going. And that's one of the cool things about, you know, the positive side of ranch of of, of cattle and sheep and so forth in the West, is that you know it, in many cases it's possible to treat them as effectively as a wild animal and so for example our cattle almost never see a truck um, they're they're interacted with very infrequently by and large they're they're out there living in the same places eating the same things as the elk and the deer periodically they they well and they get they get pushed through into different large pastures cuz our grazing is all divided up into uh, pastures, but so so no one pasture is ever overgrazed. Um, but even that that pushing them around is it's you kind of open a gate and they know what, what's going on and they they go on their own and then eventually they end up in a truck and they're hauled off to slaughter. But they've they've really lived like a wild animal. So so the opportunity is very different than yeah more more like east coast eastern farming. And, and livestock management. We were shocked in the beginning at how fast this organization exploded off the ground because there was there's a clear hole, there was a niche to fill, there was a need, an interest amongst people who did not feel represented by the institutions that have been in existence for a long time for, say, you know, cattle ranchers, um, the the industry institutions or the Farm Bureau or whatever. And on the other hand, most environmental groups, rhetoric and ways of interacting weren't going to fit the bill either for these folks. And so to have an organization that's somewhere in the middle of all that, that represents people who, who you know, who get out of bed for more than just commodity reasons, um, who, who are trying to work on this bigger puzzle and, and land management as much as, livestock management um there was a need for for a for a community like that so we're we're now at i think something like 14 or 15 million acres of deeded and leased land represented uh in western range country and you know every event we have is really well attended and we can't put on (laughs) we don't have enough hours in the day and staff and all the rest to put on the number of events and so forth that uh Demand is asking for, so it's been really exciting.
0: What are the range of uh, different conservation programs? You mentioned that there's the ranch side, but there's also the conservation side. What's um, the range of types of projects and things that landowners are doing on on their lands?
1: Oh, yes you know it's a it's a long list. So beyond the the sort of operational side of things, I think one thing one common denominator. Land managers are having across the west is water i e the lack the lack thereof um, we're we're in a tremendous uh, drought right now you know the past couple of years have been a extraordinary drought on top of a twenty year cycle of drought you know there, there there are there are parts of the west certainly that that aren 't suffering as much as others or where things are a little more normal but a lot of the west things aren 't terribly normal and the one thing I've learned is it's, it's not so much what, how much precipitation do you get? It's, it's when does it fall and in what form that makes all the difference to the, to the land, to the crops, to the critters. Uh, and that's all screwed up right now. Call it climate change or whatever. It doesn't really matter what, what the terms are. We, we see it every day. And so ranchers by and large are doing a lot to figure out how to well, everything from, from sa- saving water through water efficiency to, to raising the water table through building of, of beaver dam analog type structures or, or gabions, more and more ranchers are, are looking for the right to choose not to irrigate for sake of leaving water in the stream, which, you know, it's crazy, but in most places it's illegal to just let it run down the stream uh, Or well, or not illegal so much as you'll lose your water, right? Um, hmm. So there's a lot of restoration of riparian areas and other projects. Like we're, we're currently building, we, we've built a few ponds to, to store water and we're building and serve as wetlands. We're building some more wetlands. We're doing a lot of invasive plant removal like um, Russian olive and tamarisk in the riparian areas. They suck up badly needed water and they replace native plants. Beyond water uh, forest managements a big one. Um, again, our, we, you know it was a western forest we're, were in need of some help to begin with, but then you add uh, climate disruption and drought on top of that, and you have an ever more complicated problem. You know another example from our region, just about every other pinion tree is, is finally dying um, after the past two years of extreme drought. Um, The beetles are are winning, and we're going to have a massive uh, fire problem on our hand. So I I could keep going. I mean, if you pick a natural resource like water or forest or whatever, there's a good chance that a a, a rancher is is in some way or another doing a project to do with that resource. and you know, we make. You can go on YouTube um, and look up the Western Landowner Alliance channel. We've got these uh, like 10-minute videos that feature different uh, ranchers that kind of uh, that are part of our alliance that represent um, the different kinds of projects that people are doing beyond normal operations.
0: You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. So there's probably a chance if anybody knows anything about the rewilding institute they know about cores corridors and linkages and i would imagine with the amount of acres that you're talking about represented in western landowners alliance several if not almost all of these pieces of land are really crucial in that regard can you talk a little bit about um the importance of of that from that perspective of tying uh Public lands and other private lands together for habitat linkages and connectivity.
1: You know that that's really the the genesis of the alliance. Um, it all began with with you know I was working with Michael Suley and others on on large scale landscape linkages and and I think uh, for a variety of reasons there there had been a bias as there is in Western conservation in general towards the public estate. And then when we thought about private lands, I think many of us thought, well, you know, the land trusts have got that all figured out Mm. and, you know, you know, they're doing what they can to get easements and that all fits into the puzzle. And that's great. But, you know, we're going to focus on wilderness areas and NCA designations and all that stuff. Um, And then long story short, we, we, we realized there are a number of, ranch owners who have enormous properties in very key locations with no easements and no necessarily long-term plan for what's gonna to happen to the property, um, who may or may not be doing habitat improvements and wildlife work, but are interested and conservation-minded. And they didn't have a, an organization to organize them and represent them. And that, that in short was we we thought, you know, if you got a bunch of these big, well located ranches working together off the same map that the large landscape conservation strategists are working from, we we could contribute some of the most important heart of of, of the West acres to the map. And that became, well, it's, let's start calling around and or having meetings of these ranch owners and seeing if there's something there. And there was, and they said, let's make an organization of this. So that's that's the genesis of the Alliance. And 70-something percent of, of T&E species, they, they spend the majority of their time in privately owned habitats. And then I think something like 90% of T&E species have some portion of their habitat needs fulfilled by private lands. So, you know, because they, and, and they're going to these places for the same reasons ranchers did in the first place. It's where the water is. It's where the arable land is. It's not rock and ice. Um, it's protected. Um, all those values.
0: Also, to get away from the tourists.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's. Well, the whole issue of lock gates is, is a conversation in and of itself. But you know, from our perspective, um, whether they're T&E species or whether or not they're game species like elk and deer, you know, they spend their whole summer behind our fences on the high country. They come down in the fall on a migration through these canyons and eat our hay fields, uh, and then overwinter on our on our desert farm where it's warm. And, you know, so we're basically providing habitat to them for much of the year. Um, it's a public resource that is really reliant on these lands. And you know, in our case, our ranch is all under easement. And we do things to make fences friendly and all that. But there are a lot of acres out there where they might, you know, if there isn't proper planning done for these places, they'll get broken up and sold into ranchettes. And then the roads come in and more fences and suddenly you've lost either core habitat or at least a corridor. You know, we, we just can't rely on uh, solely the public base.
0: Yeah. And I think a a lot of people may still be, I don't know how many, but probably a lot may still be surprised by uh, that, that um, the problems that people are talking about, that conservationists are talking about, it seems like even conservationists depending on the organization and the level of awareness is varied uh, greatly in what can be done with public lands versus private lands, wild lands, philanthropy, which we've talked about uh, a handful of times on the show already, and just how important it is that it really is a mosaic for the people who don't understand. I would imagine that a lot of people in the Western Land Owners Alliance are, um, have some sort of an easement um, or are encouraged to do so or came packing with easements already how does that work and maybe give people a really quick rundown on what an easement really is
1: the answer to your question i i i, I don't know the answer is how many people have easements but it's probably fewer than you think for various reasons but backing up um an easement is basically you uh you sign on the dotted line to give up whatever rights of de- typically development um you're willing to give up in exchange for lowering the the base value of your property, um, which um, in the case of people particularly who don't have agricultural tax status, like we do already, um, can make a big difference in your, your tax bill. Um, it can make it easier to pass the lands on. And, uh, you know, I think every easement is uniquely crafted, but in, in our case here, um, we left a number of five-acre building sites um, for future generations to put up a, a house, but by and large, wiped all the development rights off of all the private ground. So it will forever look the way it does now, in terms of no roads, no houses, no um, you know oil development or or whatever. And we have to clear most disturbance or change type activities through the land trust. So it's an assurance that it will always look the same. And it, not all conservation-minded landowners c- can work with that um, for various reasons. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had wildlands ph- philanthropists, mostly foundations, ask me, what's the end game with the Landowner Alliance? Why should we support you? How, you know, how many conservation-eased acres are you going to provide, uh, put on the map? They're used to counting stats of you know wilderness acres added to the map, conservation east acres. Uh, that's how they measure success, and that's fine. But if that's your only metric for success, you're missing a lot of opportunity. And yeah. you know w- there are plenty of ranchers we work with who, for various reasons, because either it's there's ten different owners in the business, and, and not all want to put easements on the land. You know, they, for whatever reason, they can't put an easement on the property, but in the meantime, they can completely remake the place to be in far better shape than it was for wildlife and and they can they can set up planning structures so that it won't be you know sold off into to ranchettes down the road so i wouldn't give you know I wouldn't say that that has to be your your end goal to achieve conservation
0: probably can't be if you're thinking about the half earth movement and Those guys, um, Weiss Foundation, they're out there doing that counting and they're trying to determine how, what parameters to use for that counting. Easements would, I'm sure, come into that. But now you've got me worried that they might not be taking into account. How would you account for that if you were running the show with the Half Earth Movement and you wanted to make sure that you were representing what you're seeing on the ground, which is improvement, great improvement to... Uh, habitat, um, but it's not under an easement. It, it it feels like it might be something that could get left out or uncounted.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I, you know, how, how would I do it if if the world was up to me? I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I know one thing I would do is I would value non-permanent actions that make the world a better place while we're still here. Um, you know, in the in the past, I've looked at some of the Farm Bill programs that for example will pay you to not till and plant a native prairie area uh for 10 years and uh, you know if you commit that you won't disturb that land for 10 years you'll get paid along the way well the first day of the 11th year you could plow it under and so i think so i used to think well what's the What's the benefit to the public to use taxpayer dollars to pay someone for 10 years to ultimately have the same land conversion happen at the end of the day? That's no good. But, you know, frankly, Jack, in this day and age, I don't even know if where I'm standing right now is going to be habitable in 10 or 20 years, given climate disruption. I mean, everything we, we get up and do on a daily basis might be all for naught, a fool's errand. But you got to try. you you got to do something every day to make the world a little bit better and understand that it is a shifting mosaic under your feet it's i mean even even without climate disruption that's that's what ecology is it's a constant metamorphosis and so along the way if we've created some good habitat and improved the place but it's not permanently protected it's still serving value for that slice of time
0: yeah our perspective uh, as a species is is kind of silly um, i In the early years, I wondered why there weren 't more geologists in our ranks um, and It took me a a long time under a human perspective, not under their perspective, to understand why that might be and My working theory is they work on uh, if you want to say the human race has been around for two hundred thousand years. And then, and you're a geologist, you're not impressed with anything close to that kind of a number. You just don't deal with hundreds of thousands. And I love what you're saying because we really are, I think at, at the root, my personal belief is you just do the best you can. You do what's right for right now for as much of the future as you can imagine and comprehend. But I feel like a lot of people forget um You know what shaped the land that you're looking at right now, the land that you and and alliance members work on right now, that was not done in anywhere near two hundred thousand years, according to the universe and just the short life of this planet in universal terms. we really haven't even gotten here yet, but boy, we made a mark
1: <laughs> that's true well while we're going deep and and while we're talking geology, you know the the house i'm I'm sitting in right now it, itself rests on. Uh, this pre cambrian basement rock that 's between one point four and one point seven billion years old i 'm told it 's some of the oldest exposed rock on the planet, and um, for a while it was it was the only thing sticking up out of the inland ocean that covered this part of the southwest um, and then there's there 's uh you know a billion plus years of missing history and then the rocks I'm looking at, these, these 500 foot cliffs, they're, they're comprised of, of sandstone that was laid down, you know, 100, 200, 300 million years ago. We, we're, we're here for a blip of time. It's a, a really good rationale to say, you know, screw it. I'm just gonna have fun and use it while I can and make money off it and be done with it. It's also a really good rationale to say, well, it's, it's a spectacular thing we're a part of, and I'm going to tend it while I'm here and not worry too much if I haven't done the perfect thing. I'm going to do the best I can.
0: I start to try to glean what people are feeling like when they see these, you know, the dire things, the really bad stuff. The, some people say what you just said, um, and some people say the former of what you just said. It is very strange to watch people seemingly make up their mind right off the bat whether or not it's worth it. To care, it's worth it to support other people who are doing it, people in cities who can't um, at least do what you guys are doing, um, but support it uh, or just throw their hands in the air and and say, forget it. Um, sense is that it's about a 50 50 thing, depending on the article that's shared and everything else, um, what people are going to say. Sometimes it's, right. and, and if, it, if they're following us, they're going to be if they're following us it can be a 50/50 thing too you know some of them are just like i really support you guys but i just don't have a really good outlook and um and here we this is where we find ourselves everybody's experienced this anybody who follows anybody we you know in order to get news out there we've got to try not to be too clickbaity but we also want to put a point on maybe you guys could click this and come read this article cuz it's really important And it tends to be pretty gloomy and doomy stuff, which is why I like to have a balance of people on this show. People like you can balance it out because you're actually on the ground seeing what's really happening in your part of the world, at least. And um, you always are able to shed light on things that people aren't talking about out there in the news, about the dire this and that. And you you get to talk like you did earlier about water. Um, what is the real-world effect of that, especially in the West? It's there's no more sensitive topic out there than that, um, because it was sensitive to begin with, uh, before climate change and everything started showing. It's the the guy that
1: homesteaded this ranch ended up shot dead in a fight over water in the late eight or in the early 1900s.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a it's not a new battle, um, but it's gotten ever worse <laughs> over the years. And, and I, when I lived in the Southwest, I was really one of the things, because I come from the Midwest and we never worry about water. We, we have too much water. If, if, if people complain, it's because we have too much. It's raining again. And when I went out West, I was just amazed by how people carved out a living in such a place that it, I, didn't, I thought at first was so stark. Um, it took me a while to realize how rich the desert was, really. Um, but when I first, you know, drove into Albuquerque after, uh, after college, um, I, would, I thought I was in a museum. Every plant was prominently displayed with well distances said. between each one. <laughs>
1: well, well said.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. and I, could, I thought it was dead. I thought everything was, well, what's everybody doing here? Why are they smiling? Why are they so happy here? I was kind of freaking out a little bit until I started to get into the groove and feel what a desert really was. Um, But I'm still amazed by what you guys pull off.
1: You know, this morning on the news, there's the latest UN report that we're screwed even faster than we thought we were going to be screwed. And, you know, nothing's looking good. One of the the really neat things about having shifted to, you know, having spent my whole life working on public lands defense in states like Alaska, where it's almost all public, uh, to now working on private lands is... I can read that article and walk out the door and grab a shovel and get in the four-wheeler and go down to the creek with a bunch of native shrubs that we've um, been planting in the riparian area where we're removing the Russian olive and the the tamarisk. And so we're planting three-leaf sumac and antelope brush and all this native stuff in its place. I, I can go out there and spend a few hours just digging holes in the dirt. And putting plants there and carrying buckets of water to them, putting little nets around them to keep the deer off until they get established, and go home tired and dirty and feel like, you know, that could have been a grand waste of time because, you know, like I said, in 10 years, there might be saguaro cactus growing here that has moved up from Arizona. But it's more of, it's my little part and and it's it's therapy. It's, uh, you know, I'll just say it, it's self serving in some senses in that it, it has a therapeutic value to balance those con- the, the, the deluge of those, you know, bad UN report studies.
0: Yeah. I mean, and life appeared on this planet with far, far bigger challenges than we probably could ever leave behind if, if we're going to just disappear ourselves. And that little planting that you did, uh, a seed could get lodged somewhere in that billion year old rock. And uh, make it through whatever is to come and, and go again. So like, I, I wouldn't be able to not take that shovel down there and do that work with thinking about, I mean, that's kind of, you know, the one in a trillion chance, but we're talking about one in a trillion chances. I mean, that's all we're talking about. Anyways, yeah, that's true. That's we can't. <laughs> right. can, you know, I, I would, I would think like that too, because it's, you just never know. And and it's just an ethic, you know. I don't know if you read Sand County Almanac and some other things. You can't come away with that, uh, with any other perspective than you know. I'm planting this tree because I I would anyway. I mean, it doesn't matter. This tree needs to be planted for my mental health. And it's a way. It's a way
1: of being. And I think you know the Rewilding Institute family of people and you know probably all share that sense of of a way of being in common.
0: We just had a board meeting in Taos, uh, and um, that place, as all places do, that are as magical as that, um, bring out the philosophical in all of us, and you know, I was looking around, and I'm like, these are my people, because there are things we don't have to say to each other. I imagine it's like that with the Landowner Alliance as well.
1: Yeah, and you're not having to explain everything, and uh, I think that, that is certainly one of the value propositions that we put on the table as, as the Landowner Alliance. You know you're you're gonna you're gonna find a peer group that that you might not otherwise have have had really and you know and and, and being able to to share that that common experience and challenges of trying to keep these places together and uh and managed well uh, and having that shorthand between each other for sure I think is one of the things that keeps people coming
0: back along those lines. Is there ever any opportunity for someone listening to this that doesn't have a, a connection, a direct connection to a piece of land, uh, to help out with any with with yours or uh, anybody who belongs to the Landowner Alliance internships or or just simple coming out and volunteering on any of the projects that people have going on? Is that a welcome thing? Yeah,
1: absolutely, and yeah, I mean generally yes. It's it's more of uh, I think well I think one. Th- one answer is we're all struggling to find good help. Um, That's just partly the economy these days, but it's very hard to find and retain good help on these places. Um, And volunteers are great for, for sort of one-off projects. It depends on how much time you have to spend getting them up to speed and managing them versus uh, them actually helping you get things done more efficiently. But, and I think a lot of us are just kind of, yeah, too busy to take on that. Um, and yet some ranches are much more geared up for, well, they probably have the guest service dude ranching kind of business already going where they, where people pay to come experience a ranch. And some of those places, yeah, do have um, sort of intern or volunteer level uh, opportunities because they just have more staff to manage that. I think usually what the, the way it happens is more of um through nonprofits that are interacting with the ranch, so we're working with a group called Rivers Edge West, based in Grand Junction. They do tamarisk and olive removal projects and sort of coordinate them. And they they find they help find you either paid or volunteer crews to 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 help you get the work done. Um, and so that might be for someone living in town to hook up with a group like that. They might find themselves on somebody's ranch that they otherwise would have had no link to.
0: So I think your angle of hooking up with the right organizations, checking out organizations. I'm talking to you, listeners. Uh, if you feel the pull and you want to do something, you really want to get your hands in the dirt and actually make uh, an actual difference. I mean, signing petitions is great, protesting is great. or encourage it all. But if you feel a pull from what Kenyon just said, and it's like, yeah, it's a lot more fun to get, get muddy. This. It is. (laughs) I can tell you. And uh, we've done several uh, projects, really wild stuff, seed ball projects and and restoration things uh, for Sky Island Alliance. And um, I can tell you people who came from the coasts and and everywhere else left with an incredibly unique and special feeling in their hearts. And a lot of them became long time. They would bug us. They're like, when's the next project? Where's the next project? How can I do this again thank you so much for taking the time to be on rewilding earth we really appreciate it
1: yeah it's, it's my pleasure jack I, I i appreciate the invite and um love what you guys are doing
0: thanks for listening to the rewilding earth podcast we do what we do because of you this podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.